podcast listeners. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsuit. Today, it is Monday, August 8th, 2022, and joining me here in the studio are three crack members of the NK News and NK Pro team to discuss some of the recent news stories out of and about North Korea, as well as July's month in review put together by our very own James Fretwell. But first, please, before we begin, get a review out about this podcast on iTunes, Audible, Spotify, whatever platform you use. Oh, sorry, Spotify, you can leave a rating, but no reviews. Uh, but on the other platforms, you can. And on YouTube, you can share it. You can leave a, lo- a wonderful comment. Uh, and please share it. Yeah, share it with lots of people, even those you don't know. And if you're listening uh, anywhere, make sure you click the like button. Second, check out nknews.org, where you can find all of the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out daily, even on public holidays and weekends. Thirdly, Follow us on Twitter. You can find each of our handles in the show notes. And NK News Org, one word, is a general one for the whole platform. Now, to introduce our three guests today, we have my colleagues, Jongmin Kim, Ethan Jewell, and James Fretwell. Welcome on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Jongmin, let's start with you. Uh, repatriation stories. We've been talking a lot about that. Um, I've been thinking a lot about it. It's been in the media. Uh, so the, the, the basics of it, back in November 2021, two North Korean fishermen whose boat ended up in South Korean waters were repatriated to North Korea through the joint security area near Panmunjom. They had allegedly confessed to killing 16 crewmates, including the boat's captain. Why has the story been in the news again? Walk us us through it all, please. Well, it started off with the unification ministry reversing its stance on what it thought about the repatriation. The ministry, uh, unlike what they said back in 2019, actually, um, they said that um, it's it's part of wrong in some part. And afterwards, it got some headlines, and then the, the big news dropped, which was they revealed the photos that were taken at the time that were not publicized at the time. And the photos were quite graphic-looking. It, it showed that one of the two men who were being repatriated appeared to be physically resisting to the South Korean staff who were trying to drag him um, over the border. Um, and afterwards, they released the videos, which were less graphic, um, and then, but mostly because of the visuals, it got uh, new attention to the old case. Yeah, sorry for getting the year wrong there. 2019, of course, you're correct, not 2021. Uh, Jongmin, what do you personally conclude from the photo and video evidence about the North Koreans? Did they willingly go back or not? Or did one willingly go back and the other one wasn't sure? Well, one, it seemed like, um, looking at the videos, it seemed like he did not want to be repatriated. Um, that's for sure, I think, because he resisted and he. Um, it seemed like he tried to hurt himself for a brief second and South Korean staff... Uh, tried to uh, stop the behavior. But another one um, of the two, it seemed like he wasn't resisting physically. So I would say one of them, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do we know anything about their fate after they went back to North Korea? Not confirmed. No. Okay. Uh, now, you say that the, the Ministry of Unification reversed its position, saying now that it believes uh, that they didn't want to go. Why would they do this? Is this simply because there's a new president in the well, we don't call it the Blue House anymore, but because we have a new president in South Korea now, is that really the reason? They're new Yongsan, I would say. Um, I sometimes call it Yongwade. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's because of the new administration, but um, the People Power Party as well, um, during the investigation at the time, also said that there's something wrong about that. Um, and, and there are renewed attention to it, and they are now arguing that the procedure was done uh, not according to international and domestic law and constitution. Um, and, but, but the UN administration, a big part of their image is going for this um, universal values and Mm. that includes human rights and also we have to look at the political context as well north korea um issue it's one of the big parts of their um uh, their identity um and saying that they they were actually targeting a lot at the previous administration's um, policies and decisions and this is a big part of it it seems What's the position of the union that represents people who work in the Ministry of Unification? I understand they've come out and said some things. 
Right, that was interesting. Uh, it sounded like there was a split internally in the ministry. Like, just imagine it from the ministry staff point of view. At the time, they were they had to defend the mm. decision, yep. and now they have to reverse it and say that oh, actually, there was something wrong, right. and we were involved. And that's and these are sometimes the same people. Right, but the minister at the top, of course, changes, but exactly. the working level people are the same. Also, it's a party politician who became a minister. Ah. Um, so it's it's a quite politicized um, context domestically, and there, although it's not that many people, there's a, a few uh, unification ministry staff are enlisted as a, a government uh, officer union in South Korea. And they issued a statement saying that it's regrettable and it's a shame that unification ministry changed its stance just because the administration changed mm. and that... Um, there is there is a loophole in the in the legal system in South Korea, and it's something we have to work on through a social consensus rather than just changing the position just because of the administration change. Now, laying aside your uh, objective journalist hat for a moment and speaking as a, a citizen of the republic, what do you think? Are they right? Is it all just politics? Uh, well, personally, as a personal capacity, I do think that there the procedure there was something wrong with the procedure. They are, um, constitutionally, they are South Korean citizens. And although the main part of the Chong Yong, the former National Security Advisor, defense uh, recently was that um, it, it's difficult to trial them and punish them in South Korean juridical system. But I don't think that's true. Um, it, the, the crime scene was there, the vote. And I think they had to be. Uh, but, but it's definitely being politicized from both sides. So let, I don't want to get too gruesome here, but I do have to ask, the bodies of the 16 sailors who were killed, were they still on the boat or had they been thrown overboard? Well, according to Lee Hye-hoon's uh, briefing at the time after she was briefed by the NIS... The, Who's she, sorry? Uh, Lee Hye-hoon is the lawmaker of Parun Miredang at the time, and she was the head of the Intelligence Committee at the National Assembly. So she was the one that briefed the journalist mm. after she was briefed by the spy agency. And what she explained was that um, there was no evidence, which is why I think Chong Yong is defending the position, because um, the bodies, they, they threw... Uh, threw out the bodies at the sea, mm-hmm. and they cleaned all the blood stains with seawater, oh. and they repainted the boat. But still, the crime scene is there, and I think South Korean um, investigators would have been easily being. I don't know. It's just yeah, but, yeah, but the body wasn't there. Gosh. Okay. So, look. I mean, is that is that the weakness of the Ministry of Unification that it will always be beholden to party politics uh, to a certain extent because it's part of the democratic process and it's one of the most I guess it's one of the most changeable ministries out of all of them, if, except for the Ministry of Gender Equality. Well, yes and no. Um, I, I think this is a case that's actually quite rare because even like aside from like regardless of the party politics, unification ministry, although they change a little bit, um, they did not like reverse the stance mm. like this. This is very extreme, I think. Could an argument be made that the United Nations Command, which is not part of the political cut and thrust here in Korea, would be a, or could be a more neutral arbiter of determining the will of a North Korean about whether they want to go home or not? Well, they're in a difficult position as well. Um, they, they are the observers here. And if these are the military personnel that are being sent back, they can be in charge of it. Mm-hmm. But if these are civilians, it has to be done by South Korean authorities. Ah. So they, it's difficult for them to intervene. But I imagine that if, we, if they saw a violation of human rights like blindfolds and mm-hmm. the hand ties, they could have said something. And I heard that they did. Right. Um, but... It's, it's difficult for them the to, Because like, the stop. photographs of the men we saw in Freedom House, they were tied up with ropes. Mm-hmm. But when they're being taken over the, through the, the conference road to the, the, mil- the military demarcation line, I don't see them in ropes anymore. It yeah. seems like the ropes have been removed. Perhaps they were removed. To, uh, to, uh, to not alert the UNC that something untoward was happening here. Mm-hmm. And another part is uh, Unification Ministry also got into trouble, also got into trouble because um, they have to submit like this um, formal document to the United Nations command that Ah. they will be repatriating someone and they did and what I confirmed was that um, their explanation was that they didn't ask if it was forced repatriation it's not in the form Mm. so they didn't write it they just said um, Mm. repatriating North Koreans but what the People Power Party is arguing is that you still had to explain what the situation is so the UNC did not know that this is going to be forced repatriation so hypothetically if this had been a if this had been a North Korean naval vessel and they'd been two naval ensigns on board who had killed their uh, you know their their commander and and everybody else they would have then had to be repatriated through the UNC because they're military they can 
Like can't uh, but see. it's also if it's on the sea, mm-hmm. um, it's a bit more complicated. Uh. But there is also March 2022 case where there was a. I think they were civilians though. Um, they they were sent back, and People Power Party say that UNC wanted to be joined, uh, wanted to join the investigation process, but they before they arrived at the sea, um, they already repatriated. That was them. March this year, you say? Yes. Very recent. Okay. Has and the day day before election. Ah, has the UNC co- commented on the issue at all? They did not officially. Okay. Listeners to last week's episode uh, will have heard a uh, discussion between myself and uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, retired Colonel Ji Hong and Chad O'Carroll about this topic. So you can go back and check that uh, and about the UNC's potential role in repatriations. What's the mood uh, in South Korea, Jongmin? South Koreans seem in general less engaged on human rights issues with North Korea than they were uh, some years ago. So how do people feel about this? Are they worked up about it or did it die down pretty quickly? It died out quickly, but interestingly, there was a lot of attention. And that sort of that's why I, I keep saying that the political context is important. Um, a lot of people, according to a poll, the vast majority of the South Korean citizens actually did see the footage. Mm. But the reaction was split. Some people, uh, more progressives, were saying that it was they released the photo to sensationalize the issue again. Mm. But the conservatives tended to say that, oh, that's actually a very solid um, proof to show that it was a forced repatriation, involuntary repatriation. So it's very split. But it's interesting because generally South Korean citizens don't really care about North Korea or human mm. rights issues. But um, particularly because very much politicized in South Korean context, actually there were a big attention to it for a few weeks. But it died down now. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jongmin. James, moving on to you. The week, a month in review for July. Medical supplies. Um, one of the most interesting stories was based on some photos that NK News obtained of a decree or pogo in North Korea released by the Ministry of Public Security on May 14th. Tell us about this decree. What does it say and what's it relating to? So, uh, as you said, these were exclusive images obtained by NK News shortly after um, North Korea reported on its um, COVID-19 outbreak in early May. Mm. Um, This decree threatens punishment, including the death penalty, uh, for those stealing or selling emergency medicines, um, producing or selling fake or faulty medicines, and also by uh, shaking public sentiments by by raising the prices of of food and related commodities. So I think this... it, it it sort of implies that you know North Korean authorities were really um, taking this this COVID outbreak seriously. It really cared about the um, you know the not not causing a commotion mm. among uh, ordinary North Koreans and um, wanted to keep control of the situation and ensure that these um, it could at least um, decide where these medicines were going and not have people. Um, you know, try and try and profit off of them. Does the decree define what a special, sorry, a, an emergency medication is? Um, I'm not sure about that, so I'd have to check again. Um, but uh, you know, North Korea did declare this, um, you know, big emergency response to the COVID nineteen yeah. pandemic. So um, you know, it's it's difficult not to see this in the same context. Sure, right. But it, it's not for all medications. It's just for a, a certain subset that have been given an emergency label, I guess. Right. Um, I suppose uh, we, we published on the website the images mm. um, of the decree. It's quite long. It is extremely long. So it's going to uh, cover a lot of medications. Right. Yeah, I think just generally, we also have to bear in mind that, you know, there there haven't really been any even vaccinations in North Korea. So we're not sure exactly, you know, what, what kind of, how is North Korea, what, what kind of medication is it prescribing specifically for, yeah. for fever or COVID-19 if it can't even get vaccinations, which is what most of the world have been relying on uh, to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Although I should add, uh, there were reports of um, some Chinese vaccines being uh, administered but Sinovac? Uh, we we don't know mm-hmm. um, and we don't know who to right and we don't know in what quantity so maybe it's just to a very small uh, select group just yeah there's no evidence of a nationwide rollout of any kind of vaccination right, for everybody exactly. uh, above a certain age 
Uh, now, we, we've heard many times before in, in um, dialogue about North Korean human rights that family members of people who are deemed criminals can be exiled or banished to the countryside. And in, at the bottom of this decree, I actually saw for the first time in a North Korean document uh, a very clear sentence saying that family members of people who are caught and punished will be banished to, you know, well, it doesn't say to where, but banished. Uh, and that was, uh, that was quite interesting to see that in it written down. Indeed, I think it's um, really, you know, shows the severity of the situation. We yep. normally think of guilt by association punishments in North Korea to do with, uh, you know, political crimes. Um, but North Korea is facing another crisis right now, uh, despite what it might say about how well it's overcoming mm. the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, experts have uh, are really in agreement that uh, cases can't have dropped as rapidly as North Korea is claiming, yeah. uh, that the, the death rate is improbably low. So North Korea is still facing this problem. And then related to that decree, there was this very long list, multi-page list of medicines and prices and, and what's available uh, in, a, in one particular uh, Pyongyang pharmacy. Uh, are any of those medicines believed to be able to combat COVID? Uh, we'd need to uh, examine that list more, more closely to give you a specific answer on that. As you said, it was a, a really long list. But I think the bottom line is that North Korea is taking this really seriously as evidenced by the threat of the death penalty and also uh, guilt by association punishments for, um, for family members yep. or violators um, through this decree. Do, does, do we know if, do we have any idea, question without notice, if North Korea produces a lot of its own medicine or is most of this imported? Um, well, it, uh, the international community does try and get in a lot of aid. And we know that even before the pandemic, North Korea wasn't exactly um, a, a shining example mm. of, of um, health when we're, when we're talking about the, the general population. So they're definitely is a need for medicine um, and it's only got worse we presume um, during the COVID-19 pandemic because they've they've shut down the border um, not many items are getting into the country and it wasn't even a, a great situation to begin with um, it's going to be difficult to get a really precise assessment of how things are on the ground at the moment because there are no international aid workers um, in North Korea as of last year, and no mm. one's getting back into the country because of the border lockdowns. Nevertheless, I understand that some UNICEF aid has reached Pyongyang after a long delay. What kind of aid are we talking about? Indeed, that was um, related to, to nutrients and hygiene. Uh, it's good, of course, it's good news for the people who receive that aid. Um, that's undeniable. Um, it's, it's really great news. But as I said, North Korea, North Koreans um, were suffering from a loss of malnutrition even before the pandemic. And we have to remember that these border lockdowns have really reduced what is coming into the country. So we still have to be concerned mm. about uh, this issue. Yeah. Now, of course, there's no, as you say, there's no uh, foreign aid workers on the ground. That means no external monitoring. What's the likelihood of this aid reaching people outside Pyongyang? Again, that's going to be... Um, difficult to tell because there are no aid workers um, to, to relay that information to the outside world. Okay, uh, Ethan, moving on to you. North Korea has bought thousands of ventilators from China uh, in June, quite recently, and three quite a very exact number, 3,554 invasive ventilators. Now, when I see the word invasive ventilator, it sounds like the kind of ones that you might need for COVID patients who need to be intubated because they can no longer breathe on their own. Is that uh, what's going on here? Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, that would make the most sense. So looking back at the Chinese trade data over the past year or two, we actually see that there's only been two shipments of ventilators with since, say, 2020. Um, so given that, and both the first one occurring in April and the last one in June, those roughly correspond with the COVID outbreak, of mm. course. So, you know, there's no note attached to the data that says this is for COVID, right. uh, but it seems reasonable to assume that. Um, the thing no, I, I don't want to assume that you're a, a technical expert on, on ventilators here, but I, I think I remember mm. from uh, what happened in India that mm -hmm. you need a ventilator and you need those uh, canisters of oxygen. Oxygen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't just have the one, you've got to have the two together. Is mm -hmm. that your understanding too? 
Uh, yeah, that would be my understanding. But I, again, I'm not a technical expert on ventilators. The one thing I will note, though, mm. is that the different types of ventilators here actually matter. So ah. the ones that were imported in April mm-hmm. were recorded as non-invasive ventilators, which basically mean that they use a tight-fitting face mask right. to go over the patient's face, yep. whereas the invasive ventilator involves essentially inserting a tube mm. into the patient's trachea, yep. which uh, is obviously unpleasant mm. and can actually be quite dangerous if not used correctly. Yeah. So the ones we saw recently, the 3,500, yep. were of the invasive variety. Mm. And it's worth noting that it appears that those uh, ventilators were about one-third the price of the non-invasive variety so cost may have been a factor here or availability interesting Um, mm -hmm. huh now uh, why is this happening uh, ethan while you know in south korea we have a hundred thousand new cases of covid testing positive each day but comparatively little use of invasive ventilators at least that i know of uh you know we don't hear stories in the south korean media of hospitals being overrun so what's happening Right. So as James mentioned, the country has claimed a very rapid recovery from the virus. Now, that being said, experts that we've talked to have said that the way that the country is testing the virus or testing for the virus is essentially by taking a host of symptoms that people have Mm -hmm. and then making assumptions off of those symptoms rather than, say, robust PCR testing of every single person that gets the virus. So the country may have data on hand that suggests the cases are much lower, Mm. when in reality, the the real picture on the ground is much harder to actually ascertain. Now, South Korea, of course, has much more uh, rigorous uh, testing infrastructure um, and can conduct tests pretty much on the spot for anyone who wants one anywhere in the country. The same could not be said for the North. And you can buy those, um, you know, for 5,001, you can buy the self-tests, the the level flow tests or rapid antigen, one of those two, over there at at any chemist. And in North Korea, presumably these aren't available, uh, not to the same level. Do we have any likely stats on on, uh, cumulative COVID infections or COVID deaths, Ethan? So uh, just going by state media, they've had about 5 million quote-unquote, fever cases. Now, fever, again, being a proxy for mm. COVID, so we'll refer to them as suspected COVID cases. Mm. Deaths, though, state media only has 75 on record, and only it's, it's worth pointing out that only one of those cases is specifically tied to the, quote-unquote, malignant virus. The rest are mm. fever-related deaths. So uh. even the ones that they admit, only one of them they can actually like explicitly link to COVID. Now, of course, this seems very unlikely for a variety of reasons. The biggest one being that when the the virus first entered the country, yep. or at least this being the first time we know of the virus entering the country, most of the population was completely unvaccinated and, you know, had been had either minimal or no exposure to the virus whatsoever. So there was likely a lot of immunological naivety mm. among the population. And so the death rate is likely much higher than Gosh. 75. Well, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I think that uh, one day when, uh, when the stats do come out, uh, North and South Korea will be probably one of the most interesting comparative case studies of differences, complete differences, black and white, in, in how, uh, how COVID was dealt with in two neighboring countries. Uh, we won't know that, of course, uh, for many years. But anyway, also your story uh, also talks about a collapse of trade between North Korea and China. Tell us more about that, Ethan. Right. So this also ties into the COVID outbreak, which officially began, well, it was announced in early May, but I believe state media said that it, the spread was recognized in late April. Now, if you look, actually look at Chinese trade data, it had trade volume between North Korea and China, which is the DPRK's largest trading partner by far, had actually been increasing for about two quarters in a row, which was a good sign overall, um, as many of the people in, say, the border regions rely on trade with China um, just to sustain themselves. Now, when COVID started to spread in uh, Liaoning province, which is what immediately borders North Korea's northwest border, Mm. Um, authorities had actually closed the rail trade route again. So there's a train that runs from Dandong to Shiniju, and that train was halted Mm. in April once authorities in China started instituting their own lockdowns. Oh, halted by the Chinese side? Uh, It was a joint decision, as far as we understand. Mm. And that trade route has since been closed uh, it's scheduled. It's a. It's rumored essentially to restart. I. I heard you know this weekend, but we'll find out soon enough. Huh. Um, so since that closed down, and since the country started instituting its strict pandemic measures, mm. there's been a major, major collapse in trade once again. Sort of like what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Right, because most trade uh, t- goes 
takes place in over that land route, right? Well, it's hard to say because the trade data from China, which is the only way where we have access to this information, does not mm. does not discern or does not um, does not specify between land trade or ah, sea trade. Right. Now we can only, but what we can say is that shipping the the majority of trade happens by sea anyway. Yeah. So it's possible that they instituted stronger quarantine measures at mm. say Nampo, the, the country's largest seaport. Um, or other ports that could have certainly slowed trade as well. Okay, wow, it's something to keep an eye on. Let's see if that uh, if that rail link does reopen uh, this coming weekend. Uh, Jongwen, let's talk defense and into Korean issues. Uh, July twenty seventh, recently there was the uh, the what they call the Day of Victory in the Great Fatherland Liberation War. Uh, it's also a brand of cigarettes uh, in North Korea, seven two seven, the most expensive ones. Uh, North Korea's leader Chairman Kim Jong Un gave a speech on Victory Day. What did he say overall, and what did he say in specific about uh, the U.S. and the Republic of Korea? Well, this was a big one from South Korean point of view because this is the first time both state media, um, actually, it's the first time that North Korean leader Kim Jong Un has mentioned the new president by name, and um, the the theme basically was um, the a, a big um, a big focus was on South Korean defense policy. As I've talked in this podcast multiple times, the uh, President Yoon mentioned the the idea of boosting capabilities for preemptive strikes and kill chain against North Korea. And this is the first time that Kim Jong-un actually responded to that directly. He said that um, if um, he referred to South Korean administration as which is military um, gangsters mm. of a South Korean administration, um, Kim Jong-un said that um, if South Korea tries to uh, partially uh, uh, overwhelm the uh, South, uh, North Korean military capabilities preemptively. North Korean um, side will p- be punishing South Korean side uh, through a great force, and uh, and that they uh, and North Korea will um, uh, wipe out the Yoon Suk Yeol administration and the military. Uh, um, and he was mentioning a preemptive strike idea as boasting Jose. Um, and also uh, referred to a South Korean administration as being crazy and overly confident about um, hostile policies and uh, going against North Korea. Um, also, uh, South Korean side responded to that. The presidential office said that it's regrettable that Kim Jong-un directly mentioned Yoon Suk-yeol's name and, um, and, and giving uh, threatening remarks, but that was about it. Okay, so calling them gangsters and uh, and saying that we're we're on the brink of war—it's uh, harsh words. What's been the response here in in South Korea? Well, that was about it. The presidential office saying that oh, it's regrettable that they are um, mentioning Yoon Suk name. But interestingly, the the defense ministry mm. uh, spokesperson said that it's not new. Um, that uh, and and the reasoning went that um, it's it's not new that North Korean side is increasing uh, showing increased th- nuclear and missile threat and all South Korea did was trying to respond to that. Um, so so basically, it's not new. Was their stance? Okay, well that's, that's certainly true. We have heard uh, similar things before. Uh, the U.S. and and the ROC are uh, resuming field exercises, including training to repel uh, a North Korean attack. This is a defensive. Uh, tactics. Tell us a little bit more about that and and how North Korea can, um, characterizes them. Well, first of all, it's important change because during the Moon administration, the field exercises were suspended since 2018 amid trying to improve relations with North Korea and other issues like COVID. Um, so suspended, scaled down, and so on and so forth. So and also now they are changing the name that because they are resuming the field exercises. Oh. So it used to be called CCPT. Uh, combined command post training, um, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they are changing it to Ulchi Freedom Shield, UFS. Ulchi okay. is South Korean government drill name and Freedom Shield, it's new. Um, and they will be holding it for 13 days in late August and it will be including wartime scenarios, deterrence practices, counterattack drills and defense ministry a briefing to the National Assembly went into a lot of details about it. But uh, bottom line is it will be three stages, four days, five days, four days, and it will include um, a practicing transition to a wartime system and how to repel North Korean attacks and um, counterattacks as well. What did you say the name of the exercise was again? Ulchi Freedom? Shield. Shield. 
because I know we've had similar ones. Taiyue we've had, we've had uh, Ulchi Freedom Guardian before, Ulchi yes. Focus Lens back in the mm-hmm. 1990s. Uh, so we've gone through a number of iterations. I'm sure I'm going to get a, uh, a message from Steve Tharp to cl- uh, clarify the names of these things and what they all mean. Well, I did write a mammoth length explainer before did, on the yeah. changes of the names and the types of um, joint trainings and exercises since the 70s and 60s. So right, that's a very good piece. People should go and it, Was that on NK News or NK Pro? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, but definitely go and check that one out, listeners. Uh, now, what about uh, Kill Chain? Uh, that's, uh, is that... You know, North Korea gets a bit worked up about that sometimes. Is that a uh, a decapitation strike? Is that what it's all about? Well, South Korean side does not say directly that it's decapitation drills, mm-hmm. but the idea itself includes that because when Yoon Sagar was talking about kill chain before, he mentioned that it includes the idea of preemptively striking not only the 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 source of um, the, the the launch, which is which means missile base, but also includes the source of um, leadership, like where the order was given, and right. that usually means Kim Jong Un himself. Okay. So, uh, what I mean, we we see this uh, cycle uh, each year when there are exercises that North Korea makes these um, statements saying that they're uh, they're war games, that they're aggressive. Um, what is it accurate about, and what does it exaggerate when it criticizes these exercises? Well, from South Koreans and well, from the Allies' point of view, uh, even with the new Ulchi Freedom Shield, they keep stressing that it's a defensive drill mm. rather than an aggressive one. But from North Koreans' point of view, I think they do have a point when they perceive it like an aggressive one um, because of the things that I've just explained. Mm. Um, their definition of hostile policy is very broad. So I think this training also um, could be perceived as... But but something that uh, sticks with me from an earlier podcast is that uh, these exercises are not visible to North Korea, right? They're not they're not on the border. Uh, North Korea doesn't yet have uh, spy satellites in the air or or U two planes. So the only way that it knows these exercises are happening is because they're reported on uh, in the media and because there are public uh, statements about them. Right. And just to be uh, just to clarify, there are much, much more joint trainings and just trainings by South Korean Mm. military that's conducted all year, basically. Right. But there are two big ones that are being reported and publicized, which are the um, Freedom Shield now. And the uh, earlier half one is going to be called Freedom Shield going forward. So these two are actually the big ones that gets publicized um, and. It's not because they see it um, right up the border, but yep. more because it's being pu- publicized in a certain way. Okay. Um, James, moving on to you. Economic cooperation between the Donbass republics uh, and Syria. This is a fascinating story. Is North Korea going to be sending workers to Donbass and Luhansk? Have I got the, right, the names of the republics right? Anytime soon? Uh, I think it's definitely a possibility because um, the Russian ambassador to North Korea seems to be suggesting this. Um, The North Korea and the Donbass republics uh, appear to be open to this. Maybe the biggest um, obstacle is North Korea's COVID-19 restrictions. Well, exactly. No one in, no one out. Well, um, going out is not a problem. Going in, that's the problem. So Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be able to return. And of course, um, you know, there there are UN sanctions on um, North Korean workers abroad um, and a lot of countries did send a lot of their North Korean workers back to the DPRK, but there are still actually um, North Koreans working abroad because of these COVID restrictions, because right. North Korea, um, you know, basically um, wasn't able or didn't want to uh, accept them back into the country. So, yeah, there are, there are workers still, still out there, um, despite the UN sanctions. So I, I suppose it's possible that they could simply reallocate the workers who are already out there and send them to uh, to occupied Ukraine, or they could send out new workers. Uh, what kind of? I mean, do we has the Russian ambassador specified? Uh, are they uh, building laborers? Are they um, shipmakers? What are they? Well, he he did mention you know North Korean construction workers. Mm. Um, of course, there's a war going on in Ukraine, and Russia has um, you know supporting these new republics and there's going to be some rebuilding efforts going on 
um, and North Korean uh, construction workers have um, been in Russia and other countries before. It's something that North Korea does to earn funds for its um, nuclear weapons program. So um, it, it benefits um, everybody. Um, well, all the parties involved. Right. Obviously, it does not benefit uh, the US and South Korea and others. Well, and presumably not Ukraine either. Uh, who stands to gain the most here? Is it is it Russia getting uh, cheap labor, or is it North Korea getting uh, foreign currency? Well, I mean, as you said, it's it's it's, it's kind of a, a win win for both North Korea and Russia because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, I mean, it's it's you could look at it as Russia sending another signal to the U.S. that mm. um, it's not going to cooperate with Washington. Um, because you know, if this if this uh, new emerging Cold War two of the Ukraine war, you know, the world seems to be in a broader sense just not not confining ourselves to North Korea, but looking in a more international sense, the world does seem to be uh, moving toward two camps with the U.S. and the West on one side, and and China and Russia on the other. Um, so. Yes, um, I think it's also reflective um, of Russia and China's lack of support for sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, China and Russia did agree to UNSC sanctions in the past. It recently rejected a new round of UN sanctions. That was the first time they'd ever done that. I mean, you could say, well, does it really matter? I mean, China and Russia never fully implemented the no. sanctions anyway. But I think uh, the fact that they're really explicitly, um, you know, quite, uh, yes, not not very supportive of the sanctions that they're suggesting sending North Korean construction workers James, what abroad. about soldiers? Would or could they send soldiers? I, I've saw, I saw this reported in some other unnamed media that uh, there's some al- allegation that North Korea may send up to 100,000 volunteers. Is that uh, being seriously discussed anywhere? I think 100,000 would be uh, quite a lot. Mm. Um, North Korea has sent uh, military-related personnel to uh, other conflicts over the decades. Yep. Um, so, you know, for example, the Vietnam War, North Korean pilots were mm-hmm. involved in that, um, and as recently as the conflict in Syria as well. Mm. So I don't think that we're going to be expecting uh, an entire you know, an army, a legion of North Korean soldiers going to Ukraine. But, um, you know, a, a few uh, military personnel to pick up, frankly, you know, lessons from from the conflict. I don't yeah. think that's um, out of the question. It's certainly interesting. It would, it would make the, uh, the, the conflict, it would add one more element of, uh, uh, of weirdness to the conflict. You've already got um, large numbers of, of Chechen soldiers there uh, in Ukraine. Um, who, of course, were at war with Russia only a couple of decades ago. Uh, you mentioned Syria. What's happening with North Korea and Syria in terms of economic ties? Syria is often cited as an example of a rogue state, along with Iran uh, and North Korea. What do these states have to offer each other, economically speaking? What's the business there? Well, North Korea has provided Syria with um, weapons aid uh, in the past. And, of course, it, it all feeds into um, this kind of anti-US axis rights, um, mm. North Korea's most important foreign relations. I mean, China is right up there at the top. It comprises the vast majority of North Korean foreign trade. Um, Russia's another important one. But um, North Korea has always had links with countries in the Middle East and with uh, Africa. It not only earns funds that go back to Pyongyang to support its nuclear weapons program. Um, but it's also, uh, you could say, a, a form of uh, anti-US solidarity. Mm, solidarity, yeah. Uh, Ethan, I understand that North Korea has purchased a cargo ship recently that will expand the size of its merchant fleet. Tell us the basic details of the story. Sure. So in mid-June, a ship with some history of visiting the North Reflagged under an unknown state. Uh, so, if you actually check official ship records, it says it's unknown where this ship is from. Once it stopped in a Chinese city called Shidao, hmm. which is uh, on the eastern coast of China, uh, and it's a location that we often see new ships sail from 
once they've been purchased from the North or by the North. So it then vanished from basically radio tracking systems that we can use to keep tabs on these ships, um, despite having a relatively steady stream of broadcasts. So this piqued our interest, mm. at which point we uncovered the particulars of this story. So the ship being the Tomi Haru, uh, and to be a little bit more exact, if you check certain uh, check certain ship databases, it'll show as Palau flagged. But mm. if we actually go into a company's ship directory called Inmarsat, and this is getting a little bit technical, but basically there's a company that manufactures satellite telecoms uh, equipment for ships so that, mm. so that they can still broadcast well, you know, deep into the ocean. Right. Um, and if you check those records, we can see that the specific radio device assigned to the ship now says that it's flying under North Korean colors, oh. which means that the North has more than likely... Uh, taken on this ship. So right. the the story so is... So switch from Palau to North Korea. Correct. But Palau's not one of... The, it's one of those uh, what they call flags of convenience countries, isn't it? Where uh, you can have a ship registered there, but there's a low bar or low criteria for uh, rules and registrations and bureaucratic paperwork. Right. Or good tax benefits, uh, lack of transparency, mm -hmm. etc. So that was already an indicator that something might have been up, have been um, awry. Mm. Now, that being said, there are plenty of legitimate reasons to be Palau flagged or flag under a state that is not actually your own. So, for example, it's actually very, very difficult to get the American to, f to fly the U.S. flag on your ship. Um, because they're, it's got really, really strict requirements. So right. even a lot of American-owned ships are not actually flying the American flag. Ah, that's good to know. Okay, so has anybody gone past this ship recently and seen if it's flying a, a North Korean flag or still the Palau flag? No, it still hasn't reappeared on tracking mm. systems, so we don't know where it is now. Oh. Now, that said, uh, the name given to it by Inmarsat is, or the, rather the name that it has broadcast from its radio uh, system is Sahyang Sun 1. Okay, so that's quite different from Tommy Maru, isn't it? It is. And interestingly enough, if you check North Korea's own maritime administration database, there is no ship It named. has one. It does. And Online? It, it does, yes. Hmm. It's not too easy to use um, because you have to type names in exactly, and it's it's very finicky. Right. But essentially, what we found is that there is a ship named Sahyangsan yes. without the one. Okay. Um, so that sort of suggests that the Tommy Haru has now joined that fleet, but it'll take more time to know for sure. Would this be a breach of sanctions if North Korea had purchased a, a merchant ship? Uh, I can't say. It's, it's, we don't really have the authority to say it is or isn't a breach of sanctions. But what we can say is that the last round of sanctions passed in December of 2017 mm. outlawed or rather banned North Korea from importing, purchasing, or having ships transferred to it in any way, mm. um, as well as aircraft, if I'm not mistaken. So a cargo ship would definitely fall under that particular HS code classification, um, but it'll take more time to be 100% sure. Okay. Uh, so that sounds like the sort of thing that the uh, the committee of experts mm -hmm. might be looking into. Yes. And in fact, over the course of our investigation, we found that one of the uh, one of the major players involved had previously found itself in the crosshairs of the UN panel of experts. Mm. Um, but due to time constraints and all of the many things that the UN has to work on, they didn't actually get around to publishing anything on it. So uh. it's possible that we'll see it come up um, again sometime soon um, because it was apparently already uh, before them. Now, last month on the, uh, the roundtable, our colleague Ifang Bremer told us about another case involving a ship called the Anhai 6 that changed ownership, and, and North Korea was at the center of that story too. Um, how does that differ? What are the, what's uh, the commonalities or the different points with this case? Right. So the, here the devil is really in the details because mm. a lot of these companies and networks do have uh, common ties between them. Mm. But the major difference here is that there were some new players that we identified specifically based in uh, Dalian. Uh, okay. Which is a, a northeast China uh, port. Or, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, yes, exactly. Um, so there were several uh, directors of companies based in Dalian, and they had companies registered to them both in Hong Kong, I believe in China, Seychelles, and in Singapore. And there were similar names between them. Um, and Wait, was that the Seychelles? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Seychelles. Right, uh, the African island nation. Yes, Seychelles. Another flag of convenience. Yes, yes, exactly. So mm. 
records for that particular company were impossible to get because it is a secrecy dur- jurisdiction. Oh, gosh. Um, okay. But that being said, the, the newest details here is that essentially there are new players involved that had not previously been mm. mentioned in past reports. Um, so the details are in that story. Uh, both of the, uh, the, the stories, both of the ships that we just mentioned there, uh, the Anhai 6 and the Tommy Mara, involve uh, Singaporean companies, but different companies in their story. So Singapore's often uh, at the midst of all, uh, some of these stories, isn't it? Yes, it does happen to find itself uh, involved in these types of stories quite often. Um, it's not just ships either. We've seen companies operating out of Singapore trading anything from uh, liquor to sugar. Uh, so mm. if for whatever reason, Singapore seems to be a popular destination for these companies. Um, and I think in this case, the, the Singaporean company that ultimately led us to the North Korea connection had been involved with shipping North Korean coal mm. outside of the country, which is also um, a viola- could be a violation of UN sanctions. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Ethan, and ask you, uh, do we have any idea generally what the Singaporean government's attitude is towards uh, North Korea using it for potential dodgy dealings? Well, I don't know what they're, uh, you know, what's going on in their heart of hearts, I guess, but mm. we can say that North that Singaporean authorities rather have taken steps to mm. go after some of these sanctions violations, and uh, it's hard for me to remember the names off the top of my head. Sure. But there were several cases over the over the last few months where Singaporean officials had actually cracked down mm. on uh, some of these sort of perennial offenders. Now that being said, this, the penalties applied to these violators in Singapore don't quite match some of the penalties you might get for other crimes in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, there's a little bit of a mismatch there, but it, it wouldn't be fair to say that they're doing nothing. I'd say that they're, they're actually quite strong on it. Right. Now, we know that neighboring Malaysia has a visa-free situation with North Korea. Does Singapore have the same, or is it just easy to get to? I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Do either of you know anything? No? Okay. Uh, Chongmin, as I learned from talking to retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, it used to be a regular summer occurrence that North Korean soldiers and civilians would get swept away by flood and rainwaters and end up on the southern side of the demilitarized zone, often dead, uh, very sadly. This year, a number of dead bodies apparently, uh, apparently drowned have been found in South Korea. They're believed to have been unfortunate North Koreans who were swept south in torrential rainwater. Give us some of the details. There were at least four bodies that could have been uh, could have floated from North Korean side this four, summer. Wow. That's quite a lot. I don't remember reporting on so many cases in the past few years, but there were a few in the past. Mm. But this time it was at, at least four, and one of those um, identified. I think it's it's most likely North Korean because she was re- it was a woman's corpse and she was wearing the Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il badge. Right. Uh, we don't see them in South no. Korea. So it's likely a North Korean woman, but it was hard to identify other other um, identities of this woman because mm. uh, the, the body has decayed too much already. I think the first case I remember hearing about, there was a young boy, maybe around 10 years old, but it's hard to tell, uh, who was wearing clothes that didn't have any tags in, and, and that was maybe the only clue that he might have been from North Korea. Is that if I remember correctly. Well, well, there are multiple bodies. So, so um, let me try to uh, mm. clarify a little bit. There was a three to seven-year-old child oh, was gosh. found in Kyorong Island in Incheon on July 2nd. Um, and there was another child around 10 years old. Um, some reports said uh, he seemed younger, but he was found in actually Han River estuary mm. in, in Kimpo on July 5th. So it was quite, it was on the same week. Yeah. And there was another uh, case where um, an infant around six months old was Golly. found floating in the Imjin River in mm. Paju in July 16th. So these are all in July and including the uh, the North, the woman who was wearing North Korean badge. Um, with the July 5th case, uh, the, the child who was around 10-year-old, mm-hmm. it's a little bit, I think, got a little bit clearer because there was no DNA missing, uh, DNA um, matching the missing children registered in South Korea. Um, mm. And also, the, the, the I think this is the one that you were talking about, the pant pants that the child was wearing um, they could not confirm uh, the the Korean Apparel Industry Association could not confirm Mm. whether it was produced or sold in South Korea and did not have any labels on them. Uh, What was the name of that island in Incheon you mentioned where the first child was found? Kyodong. Kyodong-do. Okay, I'm not familiar with that one. Where is it in relation to uh, Yeonpyeong-do and Pengyong-do? It's far away from there. Oh, very far. So so his body traveled really quite far 
Well, but it's uh, all of these bodies. It seems like they, if they did come from North Korea, it yeah. was around like 10 kilometers, maybe, or a little bit more, because there's right. a North Korean water um, uh, inland. Yeah. Uh, there, there are like rivers that are flowing. There are inter-Korean water imjingang, and there are many estuaries that flow from north to south. Gosh. Okay. Now, um, so generally, uh, in these situations, um, it must be difficult to identify the bodies, as you say. If there's no you kind of have to work backwards if there's no children reported missing of that age or matching that description in South Korea, you might assume that they're North Korean. Um, anything more to say about right. that? Right, so uh, from South Korean authorities' point of view on how do we, what do we do with this, yeah. basically. Um, so what I heard from the police officers that were involved recently was that they have to check the CCTV near the border to make sure that they actually came from North Korea, but most of the times it's difficult to confirm. It would be hard to it's look very, at It's water. almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, but and, Or um, they somehow find solid evidence that the DNA is North Korean. It's also very yeah. difficult to yeah. confirm. But in the cases that they can somehow confirm that they are from North Korea, what they have to do is they have to tell the unification ministry because yeah. that's their jurisdiction. Right. And the unification ministry will use the inter-Korean hotline to let the North Koreans know that they have the body. Will you willing to get them back? And then uh. they will repatriate the body if North Koreans say yes. But if they say no, or if it turns out they can't find any solid information, what they do is the local government, like Gyeonggi-do, for example, yeah. they will be cremating the body. Right. Have any of these uh, current uh, bodies been returned? No. No, okay. Does it ever happen the other way around? Do South Koreans ever accidentally take a north by water? We yeah. wouldn't know, right? Um, mostly. Because North Korea wouldn't tell? Mm -hmm. I see. Okay. But, but, but also, if we look at the how the rivers flow, I think it's more difficult to flow from. Yeah, it is more difficult. Yeah. yeah. But we, we do know that, um, well, that uh, people in South Korea occasionally they send those bottles of rice over to North Korea. So there are ways to, to get things to flow from the north, south to the north. So just thought I'd ask. Well, and, and also there were cases where South Koreans voluntarily went to yes. uh, North Korea. The North Korea contacted Unification Ministry that they will be repatriating them. Ah, so. okay. uh, James, uh, South Korea-China relations, that's back in the spotlight a little bit again because of Thad and uh, Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Asia. Uh, there's a uh, an NK Pro story, uh, Mad About Thad. I love that uh, title. Uh, is it your own? Um, that was uh, Brian Betts' title. Okay. So uh, our, our editor. Shout out so to Brian. Thank you very much for that. Yes. Um, yes, the article is on Korea Pro. Um, which is our new um, oh, service. I beg your pardon, Korea Pro, not NK Pro. Um, yes, but um, Nancy Pelosi, the um, the uh, U.S. House Speaker, mm. recently visited uh, a a few uh, Asian countries. Of course, in the international media, the big focus was on Taiwan right. and the the U.S. China conflict. Um, but she also um, visited South Korea, and there was a, a big kerfuffle over whether whether President Yoon Song-yeol would meet with Pelosi. Um, originally, South Korea said, oh, well, he's on vacation, so he won't be able to meet. And then there were rumors that, oh, actually, they will meet. Mm. And then, no, those ru rumors are false. But in the end, they had a phone conversation right um which they could have had while she was in the states to be honest i i suppose so um and mm -hmm. pelosi did meet with the taiwanese and japanese leaders um this is important because yep. yoon kind of portrays himself as he likes to contrast him, himself with the with the previous administration right. how they were you know more um willing to play nice with china yep. um improve you know play nice with North Korea, um, but Yoon is the, the strong pro-American um, president who's, who's not going to stand for this stuff anymore. Oh. And I, I think even if um, Yoon really was just, it was just because he was on vacation and um, the, the, the meeting was, uh, and the telephone call was managed poorly, hmm. it does seem to um, send this, this message that maybe actually South Korea and the UN administration is a little bit worried about how China would see this. Um, we've got to remember that China, um, while the US is the South Korea's security partner, China is South Korea's biggest economic partner. Yep. And when security issues with the US anger China like they did in 2017, 
over the um, U.S. Uh, deployment of THAAD on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Chinese economic boycotts can cause a lot of damage to the South Korean economy. So I think Yoon was perhaps um, a, a bit wary of this. Um, 30th anniversary of South Korea-China yeah, relations also coming yeah. up. Um, South Korean Foreign Minister uh, Park, Park Jin, Jin is going to China. Um, I'm, I'm sure they'll be talking about all these issues. For Yoon, really, I think he he wants to, um, yeah, as as I said, really strengthen that security relationship with the U.S. But I'm I'm not quite sure he's he's um, as uh, perhaps unconcerned about how China will react to these things as he might. Who was uh, the highest the level person that Pelosi met while here? Um, I think that was South Korea's um, the the South Korean counterparts. Um, oh, the, okay, so yes, uh, so she didn't meet the uh, didn't meet Foreign Minister Park Jin then. I don't think so. Okay, you had a, a comment to add, Jongwin? <clears throat> yes, I just wanted to point out that we will really never really know what the exact intention was from uh, right. President Yoon, but I do think that what matters is how the narratives get shaped in yep. South Korea, and that narrative was very bad. First of all, the optics was very bad because the. Uh, Yoon's vacation itself was very controversial mm -hmm. from the start because oh. he initially said that, oh, I will go on a vacation. You mm. guys should too. But then his approval rate was just plummeting. Oh. And at Which that hasn't been high. Ever. I know. And then at that exact moment, he was like, okay, I'm canceling my vacation to like, uh, I'm canceling my trip to the, uh, the, the outside Seoul area and mm -hmm. I'm going to stay home. So it was a staycation. Mm. But Yoon... Uh, Office's explanation was that the Pelosi visit was being discussed two weeks ahead, and at mm -hmm. the time they were really planning to get outside Seoul. Um, so that was, it sounded like uh, it could have been a PR disaster a little bit, but nevertheless, how South Koreans um, here, like citizens, observed was that on Wednesday when Pelosi arrived, there was no one in the airport, oh like dear. no delegation sent oh to welcome. And um, aside from technicalities, that looked very bad. Mm. And um, also, on Wednesday night, although he said he's on staycation, he mm. went to Taeyangno to watch a play with his with the first lady and mm. um, the presidential office released a photo of him drinking <clears throat> at night with the actors of the play. So that was that's not a great picture. Mm. And then um, afterwards, uh, the interestingly, in South Korea, the ultra right communities, young generation men, right. Um, they were they used to be the core supporters during the election and ah. we could see from the poll in recent weeks that they were leaving already mm. but I was monitoring um, ultra right ultra left communities as well as well as just other online communities yep. the narrative was very bad from both sides the ultra right uh, people were slamming their president like who voted for him oh boy. Um, the anti-China anti-US pro-Japan line is something they've never heard of wow. so the narrative is shaping up really bad in hmm. South Korea so I think regardless of what the intention was, it yeah. did not look good. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this, uh, whether this ticks in the long term. Uh, James, you have 30 seconds to tell me why Thad's back in the news. Because um, Park Jin said that, um, you know, the, the promise that the Moon administration made to China in 2017 not to have more deployments of Thad, that actually wasn't a a promise and that South Korea has the right to mm. go back on this. It didn't, he didn't say that he, he would deploy more THAAD. Um, but yes, he said he wasn't committing to this. China reacted very strongly. China doesn't like that the, um, that the THAAD uh, radar system can be used to um, you know, reach into China and track the movements of right. its own uh, military. So this is where all this um, controversy comes from. So really, it's not uh, we're not back in the news because we're getting more THAAD. It's just because uh, Park Jin said, well, we didn't promise we wouldn't get more THAAD. So it's really just words at, at this stage. At the moment, yep. yes. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Uh, Ethan, final story for our review today. Uh, North Korean criminals, what are they doing with um, hospitals and medical centers in Kansas and Colorado? Right. So what we know so far is that last year in May of 2021, and then this April, actually, North Korean cyber criminals have, were distributing a new type of malware mm. called Maui. Uh, That's an island in, in Hawaii. Hawaii. Yes, yeah. um, but not nearly as nice as Hawaii, unfortunately, oh. uh, because it held critical uh, health systems hostage. The idea, obviously, being that people who are in charge of these places are going mm. to be uh, pretty much have their uh, 
have no choice but to pay these ransoms because other mm. people's lives are on, on the line. Um, so what it essentially did mm. is what all ransomware does, which is encrypt your files on your computer or in your server or yep. whatever critical computer systems you have. Um, but sometimes it does a little bit more. So earlier this or earlier last month, another group called Holy Ghost, also tied to North Korea, did the same thing. But then they said, if and if you don't pay up, we're going to publish your, you know, uh, private photos and data and whatnot on social media. Um, so also sort of extorting people that way hmm. and really putting pressure on. Just thinking about the names here, Maui, <laughs> Holy Ghost. Uh these are names that are given to them by the antiviral people, right? These are not names that North Koreans are making up for themselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay. All right. So there are no, uh, there's no Catholic uh, North Korean hackers <laughs> sitting there saying, you know, we're the, we're the Holy Ghost group. And there's, right. no, there's no surfer, long hair, tie-dye wearing uh, North Korean hackers saying, we're going to be Maui. Unfortunately not. Okay. And in this particular case, and about Holy Ghost, actually, yeah. one other thing they did was that they claimed that they were doing this sort of hacktivism by, and trying to narrow the gap between huh. the rich and the poor, Whoa. as well as increase what? security awareness. Wait, d does that come up in the in the messages that pops up on your computer once they've encrypted all your stuff? So they used to have a dark website. Unfortunately, it looks like it's been taken down, but hmm. they listed their goals out, um, three or four of them. Really? It was, yeah, reducing the gap and, yeah. So it's like, uh, we are here on, the pa on behalf of the Global South and we're going to mess you up. Well, I don't know about the Global South, but they... They they said that it's, they basically frame themselves as a sort of um, Robin Hood. In yeah. Sense. yeah. So, now, are we sure that the money gets to North Korea if it's ever paid uh, any ransoms? Right. So it's it's difficult to say without say like nation state level intelligence whether yeah. it is for sure. But what we can say um, is that the techniques and certain code mm. uh, design features are have been previously linked two specific North Korean actors. So you can take a new campaign uh, and sort of dissect the code and say, okay, this has traces of something we've seen from Kim Suki or Lazarus or another North Korean uh, group. Right. Now, of course, it is possible for other nation states to just say, take known malware from other mm -hmm. countries and hide behind that and make it, it could be the Russians pretending to be the North Koreans, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but in many cases, if it's coming from the U.S. government, it's usually pretty safe to say that the attribution is solid because right. they often have access to intelligence that we don't. What uh, currency is the ransom being uh, demanded in? Uh, usually Ethereum or Bitcoin. Okay. And how is the U.S. fighting back? How do you get money back once it's been stolen? It's particularly crypto. Right. So in that case, uh, authorities were able to track. So in, in, the, in the case of cryptocurrency, it's actually pretty easy to track where it moves uh, because everything is stored publicly on the blockchain, which anyone can search at any time. Uh, so authorities are actually able to locate those funds, even if they go through these, these very specific uh, programs designed to make it difficult to do so. So in other words, they're able to find where the money was sent and then get a court order to seize those funds from that account, from whatever uh, Coinbase, you know, uh, whatever platform is hosting that cryptocurrency and then return it to the victims. Now, of course, if the currency has already been converted into, say, the U.S. dollar or the renminbi mm. or the yuan or something like that, then, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're tough out of luck. As an American, you're not unbiased, but who would you say is more successful at the moment, North Korea in the attacks or the U.S. in fighting back? Well, I definitely am biased, uh, just for the record in favor. Okay. But uh, I would say that right now it's basically a game of cat and mouse. Um, and it, it's it's going to be a constant sort of arms race unless there's a major revolution in the way that security firms such mm -hmm. as uh, Chainalysis uh, can basically develop new, new methods to make mixers. Mixers are the main problem at the moment. So things like Tornado mm -hmm. and Blender.io, these allow uh, criminals, but also non-criminals, to make it very difficult to track where cryptocurrency goes. So right. if we can develop a way to basically make that technology obsolete, mm. uh, there will be a major step in the right direction for the wow. U.S. and others. Okay, well, let's keep an eye on that. Uh, everyone, quick final thoughts. Jongwen, what are you looking at? Uh, today's International Cat Day. Any cat stories uh, coming up, uh, North Korea-related cat stories? Does um, Kim Jong-un have a cat? No, but there was recently a North Korean domesticized cat on a soap, soap opera in North Korean television, which oh. Sun Chung flagged. Thank you. Wow. Um, but other than any cat stories, um, August and September potentially going to become a very busy few months on the peninsula with the USRK joint drills on um, mm. slated as late August. And also... Just to remind you, we haven't seen the seventh nuclear test yet, despite the tunnel, uh, right. tunnel number three being reportedly finished.
Uh, and Liberation Day next week on the 15th. Exactly. Uh, James, what are you watching? I'm watching for North Korean workers going abroad and for international efforts um, to implement sanctions, disintegrating at a time when the US and South Korea really wants to be ramping up the pressure on North Korea ahead of that seventh nuclear test. Mm. Also, keep an eye out, please, for uh, armed North Korean mercenaries popping up in the Donbass region. Text me as soon as you see something. Uh, Ethan, what are you watching? Uh, Well, it looks like we might have another addition to the original ship investigation coming out uh, within the next few weeks. So that would be uh, one thing to look out for. Uh, We also might be seeing a restart of trade, hopefully an increase in trade volume, but we'll know more next week once Mm. Chinese trade data comes out. Okay, thanks to Jongmin Kim, James Fretwell, and Ethan Jewell. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro and also Career Pro. Our NK Pro and Career Pro platforms offer unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can acquire about access or free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks as always go to Arias Tear and Brian Betts for facilitating the podcast and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Anderson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silence, bodily functions, etc. Thanks again. Listen next, next time. Bye. <laughs>